Hi, this is Maddie Schnur, and I'm here with the next installment of our Whip'em podcast. Um, I'm here with my colleague, uh, Dr. Don Sparks, and we are interviewing Dr. Tim Deere. It's lovely to have you on our podcast today. Well, thanks. It's so good to be with you today, and I uh, look forward to our discussion. Yeah, uh, the topic of discussion today is really how male colleagues can provide support um, to their female colleagues, particularly in pain medicine. Um, I'm just going to start right out with it. Um, what do you think is kind of the crucial ways that men in our field can help support their female colleagues? Well, you know, I think it's a great um, discussion because, you know, I've been around now 25 years in this space. And, you know, there was a time where there was so few women around the space that, you know, it really was not even a, a topic that came up. And I think the last few years, the topic's got really the attention it needs, but it's not just giving it attention. We have to have action points, right? So I think the, the, the big uh, the big barriers have been, you know, getting to the position of having access to perform, right? Because I think women want the opportunity to be involved in studies. And many of the studies, even a few years ago, the larger studies, you know, there were not a woman uh, investigation site with a with a um, great uh, uh, infrastructure to do the research. So it, it gets, it's more than just you know someone giving you a chance, but also they have to. I think we have to work together to build things like you know structure in a practice and structure in a research division. And so it, it's really a complicated issue. I, I think it's a great thing to talk about because I think some people make it too simple. You put a woman on a panel or invite them to give a lecture. That's not what we need to do. It needs to be much deeper than that at so many levels. So I think that's where we are today. We're at the beginning of what I would call a revolution to make equality more um, across the board in our space. And how would you do that in a deeper fashion? Well, Don, I think to give you an example, you know, I look back to some of the of the landmark studies we've done. And when, you know, and you can do studies uh, independently or you can do them in collaboration with a company if you're trying to get FDA approval, for example, which I've done a lot of FDA approval studies. And, and when they go through 20 potential sites in the past, there wasn't one site ran by a woman many times to even choose from. And that led to, you know, to, to papers being uh, male-only papers. And that's been very common. Now, having said that, like in my office, uh, Amy Young, my research coordinator, she's amazing. Um, and a lot of women were involved in the study as, you know, sub-co-investigators, nurse practitioners and things. But what we're seeing now, Don, I mean, you're, you're a good example there in Hawaii. We've got several of our friends like Erica Peterson, Jessica Jameson, Helen Blake, and many others, Lisa Kromf, uh, that now have great infrastructure. They have um, research coordinators and things of that nature. So we've solved the problem of there not being a, a potential um, access to these types of studies, but now we then have to have someone to step up and say we have to have diversity in all of our studies, and that's what I'm, I've been trying to do, and I, I think it's really working well. We've, we found the studies are better when they're more diverse, and uh, I have a. Go ahead, Don. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to ask. Do you think that that also has to do with like patient selected selection being different um, based on the gender of the provider giving the information? We don't know that information yet, but I'll give you an example. If you look at explant data uh, of spinal cord stimulators, women in two different big studies had a higher explant rate. Now, I don't know if that's because uh, some, and we need to look at why that is. Allison Engel, who'll be joining me in my practice in July, she thinks there might be some hormonal issues going on there uh, 
uh, which could be, but also it could be that if a man is your implanter and a man is seeing you back in the office and a man is the one talking with you, maybe we don't know the right questions to ask our female patients. So, I mean, there may be so many things going on there that it's going to take us uh, some time and research to figure out, uh, does the gender of the implanter matter? Gender of the patient matter? It's really a, a much more complicated issue than I think we've we've known in the past. But I, I, it's one of my plans for my next research in the next few years to look at some gender differences. And that's I'm excited to look at that with, uh, with my new colleague. Yeah, I think that that is uh, an exciting thing to look at as well, Tim. What else have you done personally in your career so far to support women in like your professional life and in their professional life, and just kind of overall in the field? Well, you know, I, I think we all can do better supporting each other, men, women, and others. But I, I think a couple of things that come to mind on, and, and uh, we can certainly expand on it. Uh, I've got three daughters, and so first of all, one of my goals is to, to obviously support my, my daughters and their, and their professional paths, and, and, and I've been very proud of what they're doing. But on a professional level, you know, we I've always looked for young talent uh, to help people. And what I'm really seeing, which I love, I'll give you an example. When we go to an Aspen meeting or a meeting of, uh, you know, New York Society of Interventional Pain or NANS, it used to be I'd have five or six young men who were doing research and development and, and would come and approach me and ask for help. Or I would approach them if I saw talent, and you know what I've seen the last few years—the quality of women fellows coming out of training has been really amazingly good. And so now I'm seeing more and more women who want to get involved in research, development, studies. And so I think we are, we are seeing an evolution, and it goes back to the fellowship directors picking the right candidates. And as you know, many in, in the past, many times fellowships were 100% men in a lot of locations, and I've seen that changing. So I think there's a fundamental need to work on that. So one thing I've done, Don, I've, I've really encouraged fellowship directors when they ask my opinion to look at taking a woman as least a portion of their fellows to be women. And I think uh, that's easy to do because the quality of people is, is is quite good. And there's and there's certainly very competitive women in every single fellowship application. So we have to start at the fellowship level for pain medicine. We can't start later. We've got to get women into fellowship to make them in the game, in the arena. And then after fellowship, and I know uh, Mari is just out of her fellowship a year or two, I think, we then have to have people that sponsor those women who have the ambition and the talent to, to change the field. So for example, at, at our Aspen meeting in Miami, we've got several women on our faculty and we, we have something called the Young Gun Section. And you know we, we've added several young women to the Young Gun Section, not because they're women, but because they're talented. And, and then the next step after that is to help them reach their professional goals, not just to put someone on a panel once and say, good job. But then we have to have a deep discussion. What is your professional goals? And then if, 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 if someone really wants to meet those goals and the work to do that, I'm, I really love helping those people. So one thing that I think is interesting is it feels like anesthesia is 50% men, 50% women, but chronic pain remains only 20% women. Do you do you know why what's really stopping women from going into chronic pain? I know it's a lot of speculation, but well, I, 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 well, Mari, I think um, we have to take a step back too because, like, I graduated in 2009 from fellowship, and of our 12 fellows, five of us were women. One, Dr. Jada Reese, was the chief fellow, and in my anesthesia residency, Dr. Emily Park was the chief resident, so I really think it's very site-specific, too, mm -hmm. and as, as 
Sudhir alluded to earlier, it has to do with the program director, the time, as well as the applicant well, I think, Don, I think everything you said I agree with. It's very site-specific, but I'll give you a little different perspective sometimes. Um, pain, you know, certainly, I think 20% is overestimate. I think it's less than that still. I think now I've seen numbers around 12 13%, so it all depends on, I guess, what era you're looking at. You know, if you look at some of the older physicians over 50, it's probably 5% or less, right? So there's not many people that in that age group. So I do think that it comes down to, you know, a lifestyle choice. Um, and I think in the past, uh, you know, many women weren't given the chance to be, be a fellow 20 years ago uh, in this specialty. But I think also more and more women uh, are being encouraged and empowered by other women to know they can do spinal cord stimulation, they can do intraspinous spacer, they can do SI joint fusion, they can do. So I think the encouragement of other women is why we're seeing the numbers go up. So when you have things like this podcast or WIPM, your, your society, you started. Uh, women in universal pain, you really are changing the field. That's how it's going to change. It really doesn't change because the fellowship director gives two more spots. It changes because they see other women succeeding and being role models to them and sponsoring them in their in their journey. So I think things that the two of you are doing today are probably more important than a fellowship director. Yes, and I think that also um, people like yourself sponsoring, you know, men and women sponsoring women, like because of the idea that we are in a male dominated field is just kind of the way it is. Having other men sponsor us and help us to take that next level to, to have less fear of the unknown, kind of. Do you know what I when I see a young man, um, I've had a lot of young men over the years come and work with me for a, a while and go out into specialty, and they get a, they get an opportunity, and I always tell them, you know, good job, don't mess this up, right? So I think the other thing that women have to be held to the same standard is once you get the opportunity and someone's sponsoring you, for example, Don, let's say you sponsor someone to get involved in some project, I think we also need to make sure that women, make sure other women are expected then to, to uh, work hard and, and succeed. Right. Because, you know, you get you get an opportunity, then you have to take that opportunity uh, to the end of a, a good, successful uh, conclusion. So I do think that we need to set very high standards for men and women that if we're going to move the field forward, we have to be committed to excellence in everything we do. Absolutely. We're dealing with people's health and their lives, and I think we all want to do our best for them. Don, no, do you have any? better than that, Dr. Dare. Yeah, I agree. Well, I don't have any other questions. Don, do you have any additional questions for Dr. Dare today? Um, I think you kind of hit on a lot of the stuff, but is there anything else that you think that you could uh, maybe just elaborate on, on, on how uh, we can help women in general to alleviate these barriers and realize that the potential is there? Yeah, I, I think the, I think the, I, have a, I have several thoughts. So I, we're about eleven minutes in. So I'm going to spend the next four or five minutes giving you some final thoughts, and then uh, see if there's anything else you want to talk about. I think first of all, uh, you know, we have it's got to be a, a strategy. It can't be just you know haphazardly helping one woman here and there. We have to have a strategy. And what I mean by that, uh, societies, for example, in my new society, Aspen, we have Erica Peterson on our executive board. Don, you're one of the board members. We have uh, 
Uh, Jackie Wasman is a diversity chairman and, and director. I mean, we have, we're, we're practicing what we preach. We're making sure we take talented women and put them in positions to help structure the leadership of a society. That needs to be done in all societies um, uh, because there are so many talented women. It's no longer someone getting chosen because they're a woman. It's they're getting chosen because they're skilled and talented and they happen to be a woman. But certainly we also need to make sure that men hold men accountable. What I mean by that, uh, a lot of times you have a panel and you have five men and some woman will say to me, oh, why aren't there any women on that panel? Well, a lot of times there might be a topic where because of previous access to a procedure, there may not have been a woman expert in that area. And so we can't put you on a panel if you're a man or a woman, if you're not an expert in that area. But here's where we have to hold each other accountable. If there was a talented woman in that area uh, who was available, we should always have that that woman on that panel when possible to make it more diverse. Not because it's a woman, because diversity improves discussion. I think that's true for women, it's true for minorities, it's true for gender difference uh, and, and preferences. It's true for all those areas because if you have five people of the same experiences talking about a procedure, for example, I think it's gonna be a pretty boring discussion. So we need to always try to look at diversity when when we have experts that are available. So I, I think those are all important things. So men have to hold men accountable for when they don't do that, when there was an option to do so. And and certainly I, I, I love it, Don, when you guys hold me accountable. We need to hold each other accountable, for example. If I put someone on a panel who wasn't an expert in the area and they didn't know what they were talking about, I should be held accountable for that as well. So it's a, it's a learning process from each other. It's a strategy. It should be based on societies. And when we collaborate with, with companies to teach or, or to do research, we should hold the companies accountable. And I do, I've been doing this for years. I look at something and say, there's not one woman on this panel or this discussion or this thing. And, you know, and sometimes I've, I'm told, well, we tried to get a woman, that no one was available to, to do this pro project. But we need to hold companies accountable when we teach and collaborate with them. And I think all those things, if we do all those things together over the next five years, it may take 10 years, we're going to see this be the most diverse field of medicine we can have because we're going to continue to promote and encourage each other. So, but it's going to take uh, accountability among ourselves. And, um, and to me, that's what we need to look at. The other thing I think is the last thing I'll tell you, and then I'll take any other questions you have. I think the other thing we need to make sure we do when we meet fellows, we need to make sure fellows are taught in fellowship that they really have to, to, to have a commitment to excellence. And what I mean by that is excellence and your colleagues, whether they be black, white, man, woman, you know, lesbian, gay, transsexual, whatever it may be, they need to be a commitment to medical excellence for our patients. And if you put anything above that and you don't you don't focus on diversity as an important part of that, you're gonna be you're gonna be in, in really making an era. I recently wrote a paper with Susie Moser, Jonathan Gree, um, and a couple other folks, John Hagerdorn. And what we talked about in that paper was the need for diversity, not for diversity's sake, but for the improvement of our specialty and the improvement of our patients, because diversity improves patient care. I think that's absolutely correct, Dr. Deere. And I think in general, using accountability for each other is super important and using that overall inclusivity to help better the field. It's just an exciting time to be a pain physician. Oh, it's an amazing time. It's, it's a golden age. So if, you're, if you just came in on fellowship right now, I'm really jealous of you because uh, you're going you're gonna to see nothing but a continued improvement in what we do. Yeah, that's super exciting. I mean, just in the last 10 years, uh, I've just had and learned so much in the field of pain. Well, thank you so much for 
lot of your busy schedule and doing this podcast with us. And um, Mari, is there anything else you'd like to ask uh, Dr. Gear? No, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We appreciate um, everything you've said and your continued support of women in our field. Oh yeah, Until- uh, thank you for having me. And I really want to commend you for taking your time to do this. I know that making a podcast takes a lot of work. And uh, I think again, you're, you're, you're bringing things to the surface that should be discussed. And I think that's so, so critical that we continue to have these discussions. And we should have these discussions in, in open forums at different meetings we go to together too. We need to keep this on the forefront um, and doing that will be better for it. So thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh. And this is Dr. Sparks with Dr. Schnurz. They take care of yourself and we will see you next time. And thanks again, Dr. Dear. Thank you. Yep. Till next time.